Welcome, everyone, to episode 67, Blood Stem Cell Discovery. I'm Dr. Kiki, here with Dr. Dalen James, and this is The Stem Cell Podcast. Okay, everyone, welcome back to The Stem Cell Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. How you doing over there, Dalen? I'm doing great, Kiki. It's, I guess, the unofficial start to summer. Memorial Day just recently passed. Every summer, I like to get into like a, a little project, you know, something going on in my life, not necessarily self-improvement. I'm maxed out. No improving this guy. <laughs> but, um, you know, something in my life. So this summer, we're doing a, a home renovation. So I've been I've been setting off with some painting. So just like small goals. Yeah. Not just yeah. like a kitchen or a no, bathroom, but no. the whole home. We like to keep it very well circumscribed, you know? <laughs> what do you got going on this summer? Oh, this summer I have hopefully lots of travel. You know, I've lived in Oregon for a year now, but summertime is the season to go see it. So I wanna make it to the beach, I wanna make it to the mountains, I wanna make it to the desert. And that's what I want to do this summer. Well, your travel plans are like my improvement plans. You don't go small, huh? <laughs> no, no, no. I got to go everywhere. Got to do it big. Go big. Go big or go home. I envy you. It sounds like a lot of fun. I wish I lived in a place that had such diversity of terrain, but unfortunately, it's all concrete over here. Concrete jungle. Yeah, that's what they call it. Where dreams are made of. Come on. <laughs> dreams are broken. Shattered. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's get down to this stem cell business, right? Everybody, make sure you engage with us on all of our channels. The easiest way to do that is by going to stemcellchannels.com where you can easily access all of our stem cell tools like signing up for our newsletter. If you sign up for the newsletter, we will email you when a new show is released that will contain all the links to the papers we discuss as well as a detailed show summary makes your life a lot easier, and we all like that. Also, signing up for our Stem Cell Forum. We have created the first forum for all things stem cells called Stem Cell Chat. Go sign up for free, join the conversation, and of course, you can follow us on the social medias at Stem Cell Podcast on Twitter, Stem Cell Podcast on Facebook, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. There are videos there, I guess. Mm -hmm. Okay, Dalen. We've got a great show ahead today. Our guest for this episode, episode 67, is Dr. Kristen Hope, who we've invited on the show to discuss her work on blood stem cells and her latest nature paper. Are you ready for the roundup? I'm ready. I'm ready. All right, let's do this. All right, let's get down to it. The Science Roundup, it's sponsored by Biotechni. Biotechni brings together prestigious life science research brands of R&D Systems, Novus Biologicals, Tokris Bioscience, and Protein Simple to provide stem cell researchers with high-quality reagents that will optimize and standardize their workflow. Go to StemCellPodcast.com and click on the banner for more info. All right, Kiki, I am ready for a roundup. Why don't you get started with something topical? You going to the Olympics this summer? Uh, I don't think I'm going to make it. <laughs> yeah, well, a bunch of doctors, more than 100 prominent doctors and professors, sent a letter to the World Health Organization this last week saying, hey, let's not even have them in Rio. Let, this should be postponed. It should be moved. And you know why? Let me guess. Zika. 
Yes, in the name of public health, because of the outbreak that is expanding in Brazil, they're just saying this is too big. And, quote, we make this call despite the widespread fatalism that the Rio 2016 games are inevitable or too big to fail. And now this is a really interesting question that they bring up. You know, when you have a global event that brings people, sometimes hundreds of thousands of people together to one location, is this more dangerous than the normal travel that we undertake from place to place? Should we not consider any event too big to fail? These are really interesting questions. However, they say in their letter addressed to the World Health Organization Director General Margaret Chan, our greater concern is for global health. The Brazilian strain of Zika virus harms health in ways that science has not observed before. And we're still finding out more and more about that. And we keep talking about that on this show, the stuff that we're learning about how Zika gets into the brain and is causing the problems that it does. And this is showing a growing gap within the medical field about what to do about the games. The CDC doesn't think there's a reason to postpone it. Dr. Tom Frieden, who's the director of the U.S. CDC, says there's no public health reason to cancel or delay the Olympics. All you got to do is follow the public health prescriptions that have been recommended, which so far from the CDC, they're saying pregnant women don't travel to areas like Brazil where the virus is spreading and that men with a virus who have pregnant partners should use condoms when having sex for the duration of the pregnancy. However, we recently found out that the virus might stay in the blood and in people's systems for much longer than previously thought. So maybe abstinence? I don't know. Maybe this is something we should be thinking about. Oof, that's a stretch, Kiki. I know. But what this comes out, the WHO is saying people continue to travel between these countries and territories for a variety of reasons, and the best way to reduce risk of disease is to follow public health travel advice. And so far, nobody is saying to cancel the Olympics. The WHO says canceling or changing the location of the Olympics is not going to significantly alter the international spread of Zika virus. And the International Olympics Committee has no plans to cancel or postpone the games at this point. Listen, I could see that. I mean, people are still moving between these countries, right? Almost 60 countries are affected by Zika. So, uh, I mean, really, to have it's not like getting out there and playing. I guess they're all going to be consolidated in one place, but people are still traveling. Brazil is a very populated place, not to mention most of the, the world that's affected by Zika. By the way, did you see baby born in Jersey? just now, who uh, was affected by Zika and microcephaly. So I think that, you know, everyone's coming to, coming to realize this is a real thing, but are we going to panic? I don't know. It's a tough call. It is a tough call. Things that the people in charge should be talking about. Yeah, definitely not me. <laughs> You're not in charge. Moving on, though, other scary things. We love scary medical things, don't we? <laughs> yeah. Reporting in the May 26th issue of Antimicrobial Agents and Chemotherapy, a 49-year-old woman has tested positive for a strain of E. coli resistant to a, an antibiotic, the last line of defense antibiotic called colistin. Now, colistin is a 50-year-old drug. It's been around for a really long time, so you might think, wait, isn't our bacteria already resistant to it? But doctors stopped prescribing it back in the 70s because it has terrible side effects. People just It makes people sick, and so is it, you know, do you want to get sick from the antibiotic or do you want to get sick from your infections? However, because all the other antibiotics are developing 
resistance, it is now in the last five to 10 years become a treatment option for people who are infected with multi-drug resistant bacteria. So this is the first time in the United States that scientists have found bacteria carrying a gene for colistin resistance, and this gene is called MRC1. But this isn't the most scary thing about it. Now, bacteria carry a lot of their genetic information, all of their genetic information in this bunch of DNA in the chromosomes inside the cell, but there are these little bits of DNA, circular bits of DNA called plasmids that are transferable, and they're not part of the chromosomal tangle. They have little extra bits of genetic information that can be transferred between bacteria. Now, not just genetically transferred from parent generation to offspring generation, but from strain to strain. So between different strains of bacteria through horizontal gene transfer, these plasmids swap genes. And this is how bacteria have been developing antibiotic resistance for years. And so when we see something like MRC1 in a plasmid, which is what they are seeing, that's bad news. It's the beginning of the end. Uh, in an yeah. apocalyptic battle between Zika and this MRC-resistant E. coli, who do you think is going to win that one? Oh, not the people. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's like uh, Godzilla versus Mothra. Right? You know, at the, at the, the losers there are us on the ground, that's for sure. That's right. Collateral damage, for sure. Anyway, the problem is that people are taking antibiotics too frequently, although doctors are prescribing them less and less frequently. It still means that if we can avoid it, we should not take antibiotics and we should use other methods if we can. Anyway, yay! <laughs> <laughs> Next story in the uh, evolutionary tales that I have to tell is one of a sperm tale. Mm. Yeah. What a beautiful story. It's a beautiful story. Kind of like the story of the peacock feathers that have evolved, adapted to get longer and more and more elaborate in the uh, sexual selection battle between males and also between males and females to find to get to be the mate of the females. The sperm have evolved longer and longer tails in a species of fruit fly called the Drosophila bifurca. And it's been known for a while. They've been they've measured these fruit fly sperm tails for years and years. And they're like, oh my gosh, they're like 5.8 centimeters long. We're two inch long sperm tails. And how big is a fruit fly? What? Yeah, right? Wait. <laughs> so these, these sperm tails are coiled, 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 super tight. <laughs> oh and, and they've evolved to put all of their energy. The males are putting all their energy into making longer and longer tails. And the reason for this, researchers have reported recently in Nature, is that it is a competition between males and also with the females. So the females are driving this evolution by evolving longer and longer sperm storage organs. Mm. And so these females have a track sperm storage organs within them that get longer and longer and favor longer and longer sperm. And so the males have been doing that. They're like, okay, if my longer sperm get to be the one that get to fertilize the egg, then so be it. But then it's also a benefit for the females to have more fit 
offspring as well, because it turns out that the males who are producing these larger sperm are also the fitter males. The ones that have better genes, are stronger, are healthier, are more able to produce better offspring are the ones that produce longer sperm tails. These are big, big sperm. Big, big sperm. That's a, you know, have you ever heard this expression, that guy is hung like a fruit fly? You never heard that? <laughs> I have never heard that. I've heard, I thought that was a thing, but now I'm thinking maybe it's new meaning. Per new meaning, body really. size, I believe this is, uh, the fruit fly has the longest. I mean, if we put it into proportion, that'd be like me walking around with like a, like a 20 foot <laughs> 20 phallus. <foot> <laughs> Watch I don't out. know. Well, you better watch out for your sperm storage organs when I come at you. Seriously. And then finally, let's move on from fruit flies to people. There is a an ongoing problem with drug addiction because we have you know these wonderful brains that with dopamine and reward pathways and opioids and everything. It's like, oh, yay, happy, happy. Let's be that way. And so many people become addicted to drugs like heroin and other opioids. And these addictions do lead to thousands of deaths annually that could be avoided if we could help people wean themselves off the drugs. Now, there are medications that are available to help people get off of opioid drugs, such as buprenorphine. And buprenorphine has been used for years, but it's only been available as a pill. And just being a pill... There are problems with it. So it enables people to get off heroin. It enables people to get off of morphine. But because they have to take a pill every day, if they miss a pill, then they start to have withdrawal symptoms and that it'll start the withdrawal process, which leads to maybe going back onto the drugs that they're trying to wean themselves from. Additionally, these pills can be sold to other drug addicts or to drug dealers to make money. And so these pills have become a, uh, a currency of their own. So we know that the abuse and addiction are, they're terrible, but, and how do we make something new to help patients get themselves back in control of their lives? And there is a new device that has been approved now by the FDA called Probufine. And it is the first ever implantable option to help patients maintain treatment addiction. And so it's an implant that time releases buprenorphine so that patients don't miss their daily dose, don't get go into withdrawal, and also so they can't sell it because it's implanted into their body. You can't just be like, dig it. I mean, I guess you could dig it out of your skin once it's in there. <laughs> Jesus. Can you imagine... The black market for this stuff is going to be really grim. Yeah. It is said that this is still potentially controversial because there are many people who just favor abstinence treatment completely. Just go through withdrawals, be abstinent, and get off the drugs as the best route for overcoming addiction. And anti-addiction drugs are many times thought of as just a substitution. So if you're just taking one drug instead of another, how is that really helping you? So Dr. Nora Volko, director of the National Institute on Drug Abuse at the National Institutes of Health, says scientific evidence suggests that maintenance treatment with these medications in the context of behavioral treatment and recovery support are more effective in the treatment of opioid use disorder than short-term detoxification programs aimed at abstinence. So potentially this could be a much more beneficial treatment option for individuals undergoing anti-addiction or addiction treatment. 
Hmm. I mean, yeah, I get it, I guess. I don't know. Replace, replacing one orphine with another orphine, I always find to be dubious. And I wonder if it's going to be long before real crafty addicts hack this implant. But I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. It's like a predator-prey relationship. Yeah. It's all it's constantly going. It's tough to work out. Yeah, but those are my stories. Those are good stories. A lot of doom, some addicts, and some well-hung fruit flies. I mean, why do you get such a bizarre roundup? I'm going to come at you with something a little more sensible, okay? Oh, great. Okay, you get to be the sensible one. <laughs> Not- Fine. <laughs> for, for once. All right, so let's talk about stem cells. It's interesting. You know, last week in the episode, we talked about how there's this big risk of overhyping. People are talking about, oh, stem cells, cure this, cure that. And then there's this latent expectation that's never met and it's bad or you have a a bad outcome, which is worse. And then it sets the field back. So we try to avoid overhyping and overselling the ideas. But today we're going to talk about how kind of a market trend research company called BCC Research came out the report talking about what the actual financial impact, what the market is essentially for stem cell therapies globally, nationally. So just, you know, background, this is a company that they kind of take these technology market research reports, the research commercial trends, they take kind of trends in growth of the pharmaceutical market, and they combine that on the scientific end with new technologies, a bunch of like biotech startups that have come up in recent years, and the M&A, the merger and acquisition activity that takes place between these fledgling biotechs in the life science arena. And it synthesizes all this information into a five-year forecast of what the global and national market in terms of dollars are for stem cell products, stem cell therapies. And it's interesting, I think, just looking at the present day, what the impact of the, the market is for global stem cells. So just a few fun facts from this. It's about $6 billion annually Globally speaking, in just 2015, it was approaching $6 billion. That's the market for stem cell therapies. And that's projected to grow about 13% year over year to within five years, it'll double to around $12 billion. Okay. So that's the money being spent on stem cell therapies. In America, which is the leader in this field, about $2 billion are spent this year. And that's going to double in the next five years in 20, by 2021. And the next leader there is, is Asia, which similarly is going to double from about $1.5 billion currently to about $3 billion. Now, the question I have, and I wish we could drill down a little bit more into this, yeah. and the analysis is, what are these therapies, Kiki? What are we spending these billions of dollars on? Of course, a lot of it is just the traditional, the you know, gold standard, bone marrow transplant, et cetera, which is a huge part of the market. But there's also a lot of these experimental therapies that... I'm surprised so many of them are going on in the Americas. It seems kind of risky. And I'm interested, the numbers that are not here, this is looking at companies that are doing the research and are, you know, listed as proper corporations, as opposed to the experimental in Asia. (laughs) Right. Nobody's doing it here. So let's go to some black market doctor in Asia to give us the stem cell therapy. I mean, I don't, or Mexico, or I don't know, like how much money is kind of going under the table or is this all above board? I don't know. 
I think this idea of the stem cell tourism, all these things, I yeah. guess somehow have been consolidated into this one report. And I don't know what the takeaway for me. I don't know if this is good or bad news. I'm in the field. I love it that it's approaching the market. I just worry maybe that the projections, I, I wonder what kind of therapies are really at the, at the center of all this economy of the stem cell economy. So I don't know. Yeah. We'll have to see, wait and see what the first to market are and, and how that shapes up in terms of growth. But interesting. It is interesting because, I mean, it just really does seem like we, you know, we keep talking about all these therapies that are promising, but not there yet. Yeah, not there yet. Yeah. Well, again, moving on to something that's not there yet. We love to talk about <laughs> things that aren't there yet. Pie We're in talking the sky. here about Israelis, Israeli pie in the sky. This is an Israeli firm. They've developed a 3D printer for stem cells, okay? This is a, a company called Nano Dimension, and they've successfully lab-tested a 3D bioprinter for stem cells, paving the way for potential printing of large tissues and organs. This is, of course, the language of the company that I think was very careful to acknowledge that the premise is there. People have been taking kind of inkjet-type printers and instead of spraying ink out, you spray live cells out onto a matrix that then you can build up in this 3D printer kind of paradigm that we're all familiar with now. So the idea isn't there, but, you know, nano dimension, they've taken the next step and they're doing this with large volumes at high resolution so that they can make, have the potential. Again, this is the language of the company, have the potential to accelerate high fidelity, high viability manufacturing of live cellular products. Uh, again, quoting the company, the technology can deliver large quantities of high quality cells, which can be an enabler, underline, an enabler for printing even large and complex tissues and organs. Now, I mean, I appreciate this is a technical tour de force and they're making great strides. I think I can acknowledge that. But I'm saying, you know, why don't we start printing organs slowly first? And then we can move on to doing some high-speed organ printing. We're not even close to printing organs. We can print kind of matrix, uh, matrices and make shapes, you know, like the trachea, relatively simple structures, the bladder, things that don't have any kind of complexity or functional elements, cellular functional elements to them. But the idea that we're going to be making complex organs, you know, at all, much less at high speed, I think is truly pie in the sky. Though, I will say as an interesting little fun fact here, that the projections, and I think the projections we can take with a grain of salt, of what the, the market for bioprinting is in 2024, so that's eight years from now roughly, is going to be $6 billion. But what's notable to me, it's already about half a billion dollars. And that's globally, we're spending half a billion dollars a year on bioprinting. I wonder, again, what is that What is the being stuff spread? they're doing, yeah. I don't know, but I'll tell you what, it's not large, complex organs, Kiki, because that's impossible. Yeah, right now it's all very simple structures, like you said, and the idea that we can, you know, harvest somebody's stem cells, turn them into an organ structure that grows together into a cohesive, working, complex organ that can then be implanted to replace something like a spleen. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Good luck with that. I mean, I don't know. Maybe they know something I don't. Nano dimension. They're doing stuff over there. But um, uh, we'll have to wait and see. More waiting and seeing. It's coming, though. It's coming. 
Five to ten years. That's our model. Five to ten years. Let's go. So <laughs> next, I love how we're treating plants. You know, we're giving them their credit. Plant stem cells in this program are getting a lot of presence. This is a story, and this is a really cool story, actually, which is like almost philosophical at this level. This is the idea. How do plants make more of their elements? You know, the leaves, the whatever they do, the, the organs, you could say, of a plant. How do you make more of them? The idea that the paradigm that's in place in mammalian biology and, you know, across the vertebrate kingdom, you might argue, is, is stem cells. You have these stem cells that have a lot of potential, and they can become all these, a whole array of mature cells that have limited or potential or unipotent. And this is the paradigm, although there's some exceptions to that rule. I think that's the dominant paradigm, almost in biology. But what's interesting about this study, which was published in Cell by Kenneth Birnbaum's group at NYU, is that kind of paradoxically, the stem cells within a plant come from the mature cells. If you have a massive injury to an organ, quote unquote, of of a plant, the stem cells that reconstitute that organ They are not, you know, a little residual pocket of stem cells that then proliferate and specialize to form that organ. In fact, the stem cells derive from mature, they recruit residual mature cells from the surrounding tissue, turn them into stem cells, and then those stem cells turn into the mature cells. So it's like this whole chicken or egg paradigm or chicken or egg or chicken or egg back and forth. Yeah, this is this is amazing. It's a really strange idea. In fact, it's, it's a paradox. To quote uh, Dr. Burma, he says, paradoxically, this means that in this system, stem cells don't immediately generate the plant's tissue, but rather the tissues make the stem cells, which then in turn make the tissues. So just technically, to get down to the details, the, the group, they use a combination of technology. They use lineage tracing to, to find out where the cells that grow are coming from. They use live imaging post-injury to look at the dynamics of the reassembly of tissues. And then they use some single cell RNA sequencing to kind of characterize the cells during this transition. And and the bottom line is that they found in order to do this, the cells essentially have to recreate embryogenesis. So the plant essentially has an amazing capacity to kind of overlay this embryogenic program on its terminally differentiated tissues, which is a bizarre. When you try and extrapolate that to human biology, I'm mm-hmm. picturing like me cutting my hand and then... And then the damage, yeah. Babies on my hand. Like I have babies <laughs> for hands waving around. Maybe that's just because I'm a total sick weirdo. But, but it, what it, like it's the tissues, so it's not babies. They're creating stem cells <laughs> that then go on to generate more of the tissue that was damaged. So it would be I like lizards regrowing you. their tail. Or if you cut off your finger, you grow more fingers. <laughs> not babies on your fingers. I can hear what's behind that. I'm being managed here by Kiki, who's worried about the Vatican coming after me. Yes, there are not little baby fetuses on for hands. It's true. It's true. That was a terrible metaphor. <laughs> but um, it's it's important. I mean, this study has implications for, for plants, obviously, because, you know, it, it'll give insight into how many crops mediate their regeneration, like cassava, for example, is a, is a you know, a major cash crop that's cultivated exclusively through regeneration. And and the other implication is that although mammalian or vertebrate biology is not centered on this idea of regeneration, mechanisms in biology tend to replay themselves. And the fact that this is a mechanism that's present in plants as far away as they are 
from vertebrates and animals, it still maybe presents the idea that fundamentally these cellular mechanisms may be at play in ourselves. And there is a a precedent for this. You know, there are some tissues like uh, recent studies in mice have shown that uh, the adult hair and intestinal cells can, quote unquote, reconstitute their stem cells in a similar way as this, maybe, you know, getting a mature cell to reprogram. So it's interesting. It may have some relevance to disease and our ability to heal. Yeah, I think the most the mechanism, the methods that they used for the study are the most important because really, to me, the question is, are they sure that there weren't stem cells left? And so all of the steps they took to show that they had different cell lines and there were different cells doing different things at different points during this process, that's the important point to me. It's because you hear about cancer stem cells, you know, where's the cancer coming from? Oh, there's one tiny little stem cell that got left behind and they didn't notice it, you know? So through this process, even looking at these vertebrates and mammals, are we sure that there are no stem cells in there? Yes. And that's the major question. And, you know, the reason this is a cell paper is because this group really went above and beyond. And I think they showed beyond, you know, any measure of doubt. There's always doubt, but I think they always did Always doubt. This is science. Come on. That's true. It's not <laughs> doubt. It's not, it's nothing is ever true, right? It's only, what do they call that? Everything's a, a theorem. But still, they did a good job and they got their cell paper. And I think this is one of those studies that is so basic, not even in the realm of uh, human biology, but has tremendous relevance yeah. just as an idea. All right, so now moving back into human biology and maybe here on the cusp of something that's preclinical but maybe on its way. There's this idea of uh, mitochondrial replacement, okay? But first, let me tell you, this is a story from my boy Dieter Egli. Dieter and I were on the Martha Stewart show together, if you can believe that. I'm not going to go into detail. That's a whole other story. This is story. a story for some other time. That's but okay. else, but it's not part of the roundup. <laughs> but me and Dieter, we rocked it on Martha Stewart. And uh, that's another story. But in this story, not unlike dear old Martha, I'll call it back, Dieter is serving eggs. And, well, not eggs, oocytes. But let me, let me stop. I'm getting carried away. I'll get back to the beginning. There's this idea, mitochondrial replacement. Okay, mitochondrial disease, it's something that's not per se, genetic. It's not in the nucleus, in the the genetic material of the nucleus that's present in all the cells of your body, but it's aberration in the mitochondrial DNA. The mitochondria have their own DNA in all your cells, and if that mitochondrial DNA is dysfunction, it can lead to disease. One way of addressing this is that you can take, when you're just a, you know, a, a first, at early, early stages, you can replace, you can do enucleation, take a patient, with an oocyte that's not affected as healthy mitochondria, and you take the nucleus from an oocyte that ha- from a patient that does have mitochondrial dysfunction, and you essentially take out the nucleus, leaving behind all that bad mitochondrial nu- nuclear DNA, and you transfer into the healthy mitochondrial nuclear DNA oocyte. And this is a big idea how you could, in one stop, just totally short-circuit mitochondrial disease over one generation, have mothers who have children who are unaffected by this mitochondrial dysfunction. It's a big idea. It's really important. It's thought of maybe as a Trojan horse for how you're going to get somatic cell nuclear transfer into clinical application. But it's always been a concern because just like DNA and all the cells of your body, the mitochondrial DNA is constantly replicating itself. And there's something that can happen, you know, it's called heteroplasmy, where you'll have two types of mitochondrial DNA in a cell. 
And by some mechanism, just when the cell divides by cytokinesis, some of the mitochondrial DNA will come from the bad mitochondria, and some of the mitochondrial DNA will come from the good mitochondria, and you get this heteroplasmy idea. And what Dieter showed in this paper is that while the mitochondrial DNA in the recipient embryo is compatible with the donor nuclear DNA, they can work happy together, if you carry the cell lines derived from these embryos for successive passages, you can get within the same parental cell line derived from the same embryo, you can get this heteroplasmic drift into you know, some cells that have mostly the unhealthy mitochondrial DNA and some cells that have the healthy mitochondrial DNA. And the implication of this is that doing this kind of therapy, even though it may initially result in a vast majority of healthy mitochondrial DNA in the embryo that's formed by this process, there may be this drift whereby the bad mitochondrial DNA take over and the patient is ultimately affected maybe in some few or many tissues of their body with the manifestations of mitochondrial disease. So it's, wow. it's an important, I think, step, which although it may be taken as kind of a setback, I think it's really important that we do diligence, that we understand what the real-life repercussions of these type of therapies are, but also understand kind of the mechanisms behind how they happen so that we can prevent them or perhaps reverse them in patients that are affected by mitochondrial DNA. Maybe we can somehow enrich for some minority of good mitochondrial DNA at the expense of the bad. So it's an important idea, and it's my boy Dieter. And he's going to be on Martha Stewart again for this one, if not all over the morning shows. Absolutely. I mean, working in the field that you work, figuring out these problems, this is going to be absolutely essential for helping people have healthy pregnancies, get rid of these diseases. And if we don't figure out all the nuts and bolts, we're going to end up with you know, you're going to help somebody and say, you're not going to have a diseased baby. And then why does my Uh baby have disease? What happened? This is important. It is important. It's a very rapidly moving field. It is just like this is a very rapidly moving show. We're going to keep it moving today. Let's go. We are. So our roundup was fast and fantastic today. Remember that all of these links for these papers will be up on the episode show page at stemcellpodcast.com. And of course, they can be emailed directly to you if you sign up for our newsletter. So let's get into the interview segment of our show. The interview portion of the show is sponsored by Stem Cell Technologies. Stem Cell Technologies wants us to let you know about Stem Span serum-free expansion media and supplements for hematopoietic stem and progenitor cell HSPC expansion and or lineage-specific differentiation. Expand progenitor and stem cells or direct them to differentiate into specific lineages. Visit www.stemcell.com slash stemspanhspc to learn more about stemspan media and supplements. All right, so today our guest is Dr. Kristen Hope, Assistant Professor of Biochemistry and Biomedical Sciences at McMaster University. Her lab is based at McMaster University's Stem Cell and Cancer Research Institute, SCCRI, where she is focused on dissecting the molecular regulation of normal and malignant HSC self-renewal and hopes to identify the underlying processes that ultimately lead to leukemic transformation and progression. Dr. Hope, welcome to the Stem Cell Podcast. Oh, thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here. 
it's really great to have you on. You're doing some amazing work. We talked a little bit about your work on our last show. Dalen brought up one of, uh, your recent nature paper. But before we dig into that, why don't you give a little little context for us about your lab's work and what you focus on? Sure, absolutely. So my lab is particularly focused on, uh, as you alluded to, the study of uh, blood stem cells. And we are really interested in dissecting kind of the nuts and bolts of how these cells are regulated. So we want to get down into the nitty gritty of what are the real molecular players that are making stem cells a stem cell. And we're interested in this from the normal stem cell perspective, but we're also very interested in what goes wrong when we have leukemia and when these kind of stem cells go rogue and we have what are termed leukemic stem cells, which are then responsible, we believe, for uh, initiating the disease and for continually propagating the disease as well. So we're interested in kind of both sides of the coin, the normal and the leukemic context. And again, the regulators that are really key to the, the behavior of those two special cell types. So if we wanted to just distinguish like the idea of a stem cell, I guess maybe some people may get confused because there's like the good stem cell and the bad stem cell. Clearly you use the stem cells for therapy, but then you have the cancer stem cell, which is hiding out and it's going to blow up sometime in the near future and ruin your life. So the idea is that they're clearly different things, but maybe you could elaborate on, is a leukemic stem cell a regular stem cell that then gets co-opted and made malignant by some genetic transformation? Like, is it already a stem cell that then becomes cancerous? Or does any blood cell have the potential, a non-stem cell, have the potential to become leukemia and then those leukemia, the founder population produces a stem cell, a cancer stem cell population. Do you get my question? I do. And it's a great question. And it's a, it's a question that has, I think, a, a number of different answers. So as you guys probably know, uh, leukemia is not just one disease. It's a mixed bag of many different types of cancers, really. And so I think there are different scenarios that we find occur. And in some situations, we find that a more committed cell type, let's say a progenitor cell type, is able to acquire certain mutations that are able to impart to that progenitor cell the properties of self renewal that then allow that cell to behave as a leukemic stem cell. So it didn't start out its life as a leukemic stem cell or as a stem cell in any sense of the word, but it acquired these mutations that gave it that, that capacity. We also know that there are certain times, certain types of cancers and leukemias in particular, that the cell of origin really was a stem cell from the very beginning and that that stem cell, that normal healthy stem cell, acquired a distinct set of mutations that gave it its leukemic stem cell capacity and, and really gave it the opportunity to generate a leukemic clone that then could propagate abnormal hematopoiesis in the patient, for example. So it's a little bit of both. There is the capacity really to make a progenitor cell type into a leukemic stem cell, but we also do know, of course, then that HSCs or normal blood stem cells also have this capacity to become leukemic. So they can go rogue at any point along the whole hematopoietic ontogeny. Anywhere down the line, these cells I can go rogue. I think there's a limit. I think that there probably is a limit to how far down you can make it down the hierarchy before you're you no longer are able to introduce enough mutations or more powerful enough mutations to really take those cells really all the way back? That's a fantastic question. 
would, you, would that have to do with how, how often the cells divide, right? Because we think of division as being the point in which the mutations can get incorporated. Exactly. I think the other way to think about it is that a stem cell sits around for quite a long time, right? They're fairly long-lived cells. So one way of thinking about it and one theory is that stem cells may be more able to acquire mutations simply by virtue of the fact that they're around for a longer period of time in an individual Whereas a mature cell type, which has a short half-life and isn't going to be sticking around very long, is not going to be susceptible to acquiring many, many, many mutations over its lifespan. What do you think, though, about, uh, so that's a, that a point is like how long it's been there. I guess I'm trying to drill down. What's, how does cancer come into being? That's a big question. So there's the which cells give rise to the cancer. There's, there's when in their development or what are the factors in terms of how long and what are the, like, the agents that cause them? Why is it so often the kids get leukemia? Or is it not disproportionate that leukemia presents in childhood? What is, is it environmental? Can you elaborate on why cancer comes from these cells? Oh, boy, that's such a tough question. <laughs> um, so I think, again, there are many answers to your question. But I will point out that leukemia is generally, so you're right, there are certain types of leukemias that develop with higher incidences in younger individuals in, in children. But there are also uh, many types of acute myeloid leukemia, which was the disease that I predominantly study, which are really coming up in aged populations. So they tend to associate more with elderly individuals or people are of advanced age. And I think that is probably fairly suggestive of the, the fact that, again, over one's lifespan, you're acquiring mutations sequentially as you age. And at some point, at the end of, of your days or close to the end of your days, you're maybe going to have enough of, of a constellation of mutations that are able to jumpstart these cells and, and initiate these leukemic stem cells to begin their leukemic propagation process. So let's go from understanding where the cancer is coming from to actually talking about how to treat it. And that's more of the basis of your recent Nature paper. Sure. When, when you're looking at treating a leukemia, is, this, is it always going to be something like a stem cell transplant? Are you always looking at that? Sure. So there are, of course, many different types of treatments of cancer and of leukemia. So bone marrow transplants, uh, hematopoietic stem cell transplants are just one type of transplant. And certain individuals would be eligible for these treatments as opposed to others. It's a fairly challenging procedure for a patient to undergo a bone, a bone marrow transplant. So it's typically not given to individuals, again, that are very elderly that would not survive the procedure itself. So that is one important thing to think about. So, you know, you can imagine there's the standard chemotherapies that are given to, to individuals with acute myeloid leukemia, for example. But there are certain individuals whose indication would be that they would have a better survival option if they received a, a blood stem cell transplantation. And in those cases, then we would try and source cells for that patient that would be an appropriate immune match. And so that they could essentially have their blood system replaced by the stem cells that come from that healthy donor. And our umbilical cord blood stem cells, are those like the, the top of the list for donors? Yes. <laughs> so there are a variety of sources that we know work for uh, stem cell transplantation of the blood. And one of those sources, as you mentioned, is umbilical cord blood. I, I, I will also point out, though, that it's a relatively new source, as it were, I think, Bone marrow stem cells have been used for decades, for a long time. 
And there's also mobilized peripheral blood stem cells. So this is where you actually treat the donor person, what's called a mobilizing agent. And the stem cells will mobilize from the bone marrow of that individual into their periphery, into their peripheral blood. And then the stem cells can be harvested in that manner. So those are, those are two other sources. One thing that's very unique, I think, about umbilical cord blood stem cells, it's, it's been found that recipients of these particular stem cells have a much better outcome in the sense that the cells that are transplanted in to the recipient don't tend to undergo what's called this graft versus host response. So umbilical cord blood stem cells are a nice option from that perspective. The other really great advantage, of course, of umbilical cord blood stem cells is that they're easily obtainable. These are taken from the umbilical cord that joins the mom and the baby at birth. So they're very easy to harvest. There's no danger to mom or baby. They can be easily cryopreserved and banked. And of course, babies are being born all the time. So it's a very large source of cells that's out there and that's available. So a huge advantage from that perspective as well. So maybe this is a good time to touch on your paper because I, one of the limitations of cord blood has been that, you know, you don't know how many stem cells are actually in the bag, the bag of blood that's derived from the cord blood. And, you know, it varies. Some cords may yield more or less. And oftentimes you have to transplant because of the size of the recipient patient because they're adults and have a higher blood volume. You need to transplant two bags. So one of the major, I think, innovations in strides forward of your paper was to kind of hack the, the molecular biology of the umbilical cord stem cells in order to find a way to make them proliferate so you could get more stem cells per cord and be able to treat one, maybe more than one patient with a single bag of stem cells. Could you kind of give us maybe the molecular detail and, and iron out any of the misapprehensions I just had of your study? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, you did a great job. I thought it was an excellent summary. Well, yeah, thank so- you. <laughs> So I think it's an important point that, you know, cord blood stem cells have these important advantages for transplant purposes. Absolutely. But as you pointed out, their numbers are not really high in these tiny little sources of cord blood that we get from an individual baby. So that's a major problem when we're talking about transplanting an adult. Bigger person needs more stem cells. So Oftentimes, umbilical cord blood transplants are not really, you know, an adult patient cannot actually receive a cord blood transplant because the cell numbers are so few. So in the field, uh, a huge focus has been to try and expand these stem cells. And the reason I say it's been a huge focus is because we can't put these cells in a dish and have them just grow. They really don't like to grow in vitro cultures. So this is where we've tried to develop some strategies to promote their expansion and promote their growth and culture to solve some of these problems. And again, I think the reason that we can't or have had trouble up to this point culturing these cells is that we really don't understand really, I think as much as we need to anyway, how they work at a molecular level. I firmly believe that understanding the molecular biology that underlies the unique behavior of these cells is really going to provide the key to then manipulating them in the way that we want, which is to get them to grow in the conditions that we put them in. So our major goal was to look at the the role of a a protein that's very close to my heart. This is a protein known as Musashi 2. And we were very interested in understanding how this Musashi 2 protein might be regulating these human umbilical cord blood stem cells. 
and I can go on if you'd like. Or yes, please. <laughs> no, I think you introduced the next question very well, which is how is Musashi 2 involved and why is it so important? Sure. So Musashi 2 is a protein that we we knew of coming into the study because it's been looked at in the mouse blood system. And so there was information going into our, our own work in the human setting that Musashi 2 might have some very important roles in the human blood system. But at the time we began our work, very, very little had been done to look at the importance, the possible importance of Musashi 2 in the human stem cells. And of course, also in human umbilical cord blood stem cells. So we basically embarked with some loss and gain of function strategies at the outset of our our experiments to try and determine whether we, when we reduced Musashi 2's uh, presence using RNAi, or when we overexpressed Musashi 2 using standard overexpression strategies, what would be the outcome on those umbilical cord blood stem cells when we interrogated their biology? So basically what happened was when we knocked down MSI2 with RNAi, we find that the stem cells are highly compromised. They are really no longer able to do their primary function of recapitulating the blood system. So when we transplant these cells into recipient immunodeficient mice, the stem cells that received the Musashi 2 knockdown uh, construct were no longer able to regenerate the blood system in those transplanted mice. So that was already a very exciting finding. Then we decided to try again the opposite experiment, which is to put more Musashi 2 in using ectopic overexpression strategies. And we started to see some really interesting things happening here. We started to see something that looked like an expansion of the phenotype that is indicative of a blood stem cell. We also did some RNA sequencing studies that showed us that the expression profile that we were creating when we overexpressed Musashi 2 was also highly representative of a blood stem cell signature. And so this was giving us early hints that perhaps Musashi 2 might have the power when we put these cells in that very challenging in vitro environment to expand them, to enforce stemness. And that's when we basically began those ex vivo culture assays where we did in fact overexpress Musashi 2, put the cells in the dish and ask, could Musashi 2 keep those stem cells self-renewing and expanding. And the answer, of course, as you know from the paper, was yes, we did. We we described fairly large level expansion, not only of the longest term uh, hematopoietic stem cells, but also of these what we call short-term hematopoietic stem cells, which are really responsible for that very early wave post-transplant of a lot of important immune cells. So very exciting findings for us when we embarked on those ex vivo culture studies. I'm thinking, I mean, this is a major inroad for treatment of multiple cancers via transplant of these healthy HSCs. I'm thinking on the flip side, is there possibly also then if you knock down Musashi 2 in cancer stem cells, that it'd be a means of targeting the leukemic stem cell? Have you, have you, I'm sure you're, you're thinking (laughs) along the same lines. Have you started anything? That's a great question. Yes, we are, we are on it. It's underway. Those types of experiments I think are absolutely critical and definitely come to mind after uh, the results we've had in the normal setting when we overexpress. Yes. So the short answer, the short answer there is shut up. I'm already working on it. I'm working on it. Yeah. Results to come later. All right. Well, I can't wait. In terms of the um, applicability of 
this technique to actually creating more of these umbilical blood stem cells for use, for giving to patients who need the transplants. Is this as going to be as simple as, hey, let's just add Musashi 2 to a dish and the cells are going to grow and everything's happy and shiny and easy? Or is this like we now you understand Musashi 2 is implicated in this? Do we have to go back in the signaling pathway to figure out how to control Musashi 2 a little bit more directly? That's how I see it. Exactly. I, I think it's going to be my, my view to the kind of work that we've done is to really get down to the, the basics of how things are working. And, the, and now I think that maybe the heavy lifting uh, that needs to happen is really going to be defining those signaling pathways and identifying perhaps small molecules, drugs that can intersect with those pathways in the ways that we want them to, to enforce this expansion as Musashi is doing. So, so to basically mimic the effects that Musashi 2 is having on these pathways. So yes, there, there is work to be done on this, absolutely. Although I think we do have some early hints about some of what these pathways are that are being influenced, for sure. Yeah, for example, it seems one of the conclusions of your paper, or one of the ideas was that you were targeting this aryl hydrocarbon receptor. The Musashi was depleting that in the cells. I mean, do you go to the receptor level? If you inhibit the aryl hydrocarbon receptor directly, Will that recapitulate the phenotype? Or are there no ways that there's no compounds for doing that at the current stage? So state? great question. And I think one of the other reasons that this finding was very exciting for us of this intersecting with the aryl hydrocarbon receptor pathway is that, in fact, yes, a very nice small molecule screen was done several years ago uh, that identified an antagonist, a small molecule antagonist of the aryl hydrocarbon receptor itself, which in fact did promote poor blood stem cell expansion. So we were very excited to see that Musashi 2 is a part of this and is involved in this, in the repression of this pathway. It kind of affirmed your conclusions. Yes. It was nice supporting data. I see. I think, I see. So. I, I think so. I mean, there may be other players that Musashi 2 is acting on, but I think it's very important that a prominent player is, in fact, this CYP1B1 inhibit factor, which is actually the downstream effector of or one of the downstream effectors of the aryl hydrocarbon receptor signaling pathway. So how many years away are we from expanded blood cell populations? Is this five or 10 years? So, <laughs> I mean, this is, it's hard to nail down. It's dependent on so many things. I will point out that there are other okay. excellent research groups doing this type of work on completely different cellular pathways. And there's some really exciting stuff coming out of those labs early trial results and things suggesting that we may already have some things in the pipeline that are already achieving expansion. So I'm hoping to add to that story and, and to, to add, um, you know, maybe in the future, maybe in five to 10 years, compounds that, that are going to add to that, synergize with those, and really improve the stem cell numbers that we can get to really help patients that need these, these transplants, life-saving transplants. Kristen, I have to apologize for Kiki because it's like a gag. We try to make all the guests say at some point five to ten years. Five to ten years. It's like you just got Sorry. pranked. No, we don't actually. We no, don't actually do that. Prank. We don't actually do that. But it's a little a little joke we've had in in recent episodes. And I, you know, you get it as a scientist. You know, that's what everybody says. Five to ten years, which is pretty much just saying I don't know. <laughs> I think the new joke. The joke is we're going to have to make up a number that's just totally outlandish to make people start listening to us again. Like say something in like two hundred years, <laughs> so that people will be like, "So wait, that's like a really long time." <laughs> Let me put it this way. I don't think it's going to take 200 years. Okay, fair, fair. 
then I can wait for hey, it. Hey, that's positive. It's positive. Yeah. It'll be less than 200 years. <laughs> that'll be our new I'm excited. Our new tagline. Stem cell podcast. <laughs> we investigate technologies that'll happen in less than 200 years. <laughs> Absolutely. So you're working on these other uh, markers on other control factors. You're looking into the question of, of actually whether it can maybe control cancer itself through the application of these factors. Is there anything else keeping you busy? So I will say that one thing that I find very fascinating about Musashi 2, it's kind of a special protein in the sense that it's not a transcription factor. I know people are very excited about transcription. They should be. It's very important. Transcription factors have been looked at a lot in hematopoiesis and epigenetics, also a very important uh, layer of control of the biology of stem cells. So two important areas of regulation that are highly studied and RNA binding proteins, which is what Musashi 2 is, um, have been relatively overlooked in the blood stem cell field. And so I think our discovery that Musashi 2 is a very potent regulator of blood stem cell self-renewal is exciting in the sense that it opens up the possibility that there's this huge other layer that's been relatively overlooked that's controlling major roles, major biology in the stem cell compartment. So for us, this opens up that whole new level of regulation for study. And so we're very interested in now defining whether there are other RNA binding proteins that are also important in regulating aspects of stemness or fate decision-making in the blood system. So that's what's keeping me busy now is, is streaming up new ideas to, to ask those types of questions. Do you see lots of, lots of challenges ahead in that direction? Just is so wide open and unknown is something that jumps to my, <laughs> my mind. You hit the nail on the head. That's absolutely it. When you're embarking on something that's so new and understudied, how do you how do you get into that niche? How do you actually begin? So yeah, we've developed a few ideas around how we can maybe pinpoint some of those RNA binding proteins that might be good candidates to start studying. There are definitely different ways that we're trying to go about identifying those RNA binding proteins. And we have a few interesting candidates that we've already started to work on. So yeah, it's not an easy road, but I think it's the right road. And it's very exciting to me that it is understudied. I always find these things to be, these challenges actually very motivating. So yeah, so we're, we're looking to address them going forward, but I think there's a lot of excitement and motivation in the lab to try and to get at some of these new RNA binding protein regulators for sure. That's cool. Dalen, did you have any more questions? Have you spent your entire academic career in Canada? I have spent my entire academic career in Canada. So I've been very lucky. I trained um, with some absolutely wonderful mentors. I did my PhD with Dr. John Dick in Toronto. And then I moved uh, from my postdoctoral studies to the lab of Dr. Guy Sauvageau in Montreal. And so I had just two wonderful mentors there uh, with John and Guy and now have a fantastic new group of coworkers at uh, McMaster at the Stem Cell and Cancer Research Institute who are also, I'm continuing to mentor me and help me along the road. And I've just been very privileged all the way through to work with just some fantastic teachers, mentors, and colleagues. So, they got a lot of good people up there. Oh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I got, one, I got a follow up, though. That it's, and so, when Donald Trump is elected president, where should I? <laughs> Where should I emigrate to? <laughs> What's well, the best? Don't... Should I go to French Canada or should I go to the other Canada? Dalen, it doesn't matter. Canada doesn't want you. 
Oh, <laughs> I have something to offer Canada. You do so much. It's true. I mean, I've been so to Montreal. Plus- I love Montreal. Montreal, Montreal reminds me of New York. Beautiful. Montreal is beautiful. Fantastic city. Loved it. Toronto also. I mean, I've had experiences in both cities. I love both of them. So I won't advocate one over the other. But I will say that we would welcome you in Canada <laughs> if you want to move. You're very, very welcome. All right, well, I'll, I'll see you in about, what is it now? I got about four months, five months. You might be getting a call from me. Okay, okay. That would be funny. Anyway. <laughs> that would be tragic. <laughs> tragic. Great loss for New well, York. Good, good for me. Good for Canada, not good, <laughs> good for America. There you go. Yeah. There you go. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Hope. This has just been fantastic speaking with you about your work. Yeah, we had a lot of fun. I did too. Thank you again very much for the invitation. It was a pleasure. Of course. And maybe we'll have you back on again when you've uncovered the deeper mechanisms that are involved. Sure, in less than 200 years. Less than 200. Perfect. (laughs) (laughs) We'll schedule it. Okay. It's in the calendar. Perfect. Thank you so much again. Take care. Bye. 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 All right, Kiki, what a great interview. Kristen Hope telling us about cancer stem cells, a little bit about hematopoietic stem cells in the cord blood and the implications for treating disease. Also, a lovely person who spent her entire life in Canada. Uh, (laughs) What do you think, Kiki? How was that? That was great, wasn't it? Oh, it was fantastic. I mean, the the work she's doing is really interesting. You know, similarly to our interview with Kateri Moore on other aspects of these blood stem cells, there's so much there that we have to learn. And, you know, once again, Dr. Hope said, there's so much we don't understand. And what she's working on, when I initially thought about it, I was like, man, is this going to be like PCR was to understand, to getting to gene sequencing you know, when we couldn't get enough DNA and then PCR came around and right. all of a sudden it was like, bam, it changed the technology of dealing with DNA. I was like, okay, is this going in that direction of dealing with these stem cells, giving us that opportunity to grow more and do more with them? Yeah, I think it's a paradigm shift. And I think most, I mean, when you look at the field, people have been looking for these. I, I always am very impressed with people who are in a crowded field and make you know, paradigm shifting innovations because, yeah. you know, it's a lot of smart people in science. They got all those advanced degrees and nobody can get something done. And you get a lot of credit for getting it done yourself. That is true. But at this time, it is time for us to close the show with our wonderful, fantastic stem cell podcast rant. This rant is our chance to complain about something that bothers us and that most likely bothers all of you out there. So, Dalen, what are we ranting about today? Today, Kiki, we're ranting about, I don't know what the actual title is, but it, I call it just stupid questions. Oh, no. But there are no stupid questions. Yeah, Come on. Well, aren't we maybe, taught that? Maybe in grade <laughs> school, but I find that all the adults I know often ask stupid questions. And they all say, I mean, it's, it's specific to me because I'm one of the few people amongst my, my social group who has a Ph.D., so oftentimes people are like, oh, Dalen, he's a PhD. He's a doctor. You're a he's doctor. A doctor. I'm mm-hmm. a doctor. And then all people, you know, they come and they're asking me about some fungus on their foot or something. <laughs> and it's just, I mean, forget it. It's like annoying. I get it. And I don't blame the person. But if you only knew how humiliating it is to all the time be like, yeah, 
well, you know, I'm not like a real doctor. I'm, I'm just like a scientist and like slink away into the corner as they look at me with total disdain and say, yeah, but still, what do I do about this fungus on my foot? So I, I'm at a point where I'm just annoyed and I'm sick of it. And now when people ask me stupid questions, I give them stupid answers. I'll tell that guy to amputate his foot. Take your foot off. Get rid of it, I say. That's going to just get rid of it. My summary statement, get rid of it. I'm just done with the stupid questions, Kiki. Yeah, I've done some like question answer stuff online, you know, where I do live streaming video and people can chat and ask me questions. And the thing is to ask me questions about the science I work on or just science I've reported on, you know, talk to a PhD scientist and let me answer your questions. And then people are like, can you help me with my homework? <laughs> no, not going to help you with your homework. I've had That's, enough of that. Come on. That's a dumb question. <laughs> right? I'm like, okay, just because I'm sitting here answering questions, I'm not going to help you with your homework. This is supposed to be a conversation about cool things that people want to think about. And no. And then my other thing is like television people, they don't want to call you a doctor on TV because it confuses the, the viewers. And so like you said, you were on Martha Stewart earlier. Mm-hmm. I've been on TV before and they refuse, even though my online name and my screen name is Dr. Kiki, refuse, absolutely refuse to call me Dr. Kiki. And they, So what do they call you? Well, they call me Kiki Sanford, PhD. PhD. They yeah. have to separate that... I'm not a doctor, doctor. I'm a different doctor. That's some kind of prejudice or something. We got to call, yeah. we got to call uh, ACLU on that one. I know. I'm a doctor. I'm a do- Well, I'm always saying I'm not a doctor. You're always saying you are a doctor. We got to well, get, I'm- we got to get a common denominator. What does your diploma say? Your, your degree. It says a bunch of stuff in Latin. Doctor I, I never really of- read it. <laughs> Philosophy. Right? Actually, it says, I'm looking at it right now, it says philosophy doctoral. Latin. <laughs> there we go. Which is to say, I don't know what's wrong with your foot. <laughs> and don't ask me. Oh my gosh. You guys, if you have questions, rant ideas, let us know on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or just email us, stemcellpodcast at gmail.com. Dalen. We did it. This concludes another episode, episode 67 of the Stem Cell Podcast. I thought it was pretty cool. Yeah. It was very cool. You know, 67 is two-thirds way through. We're over two-thirds to 100. That doesn't mean much to most people, but I'm a number guy. I think that means something. I'm happy. (laughs) I'm pleased with our progress, even though we've only done about 5% 5, of those. Yeah. But still, the podcast is getting there, babe. It's getting there. Kiki, this was a good one. This was a really good one, I think. Everyone out there, let us know. Let us know how you think we're doing. You know, both of us are new at this podcast for you. So let us know what you think. We'll be back again for the next episode, number 68, with another fantastic interview and a bunch of the latest papers delivered by us. I'm looking forward to the next time. Can't wait.